Amen. Good morning, Crossway. Uh, welcome to our first service. Uh, it's always a privilege to be able to share God's Word uh, with you guys. I want to start off by asking you a question, and uh, maybe you can share it with your neighbor. But have you ever, or do you have currently uh, today a nickname, something that people call you by that's not your given name? And what is it? Maybe you can kind of share that with your neighbor, or if you ever had one. Or... All right, now time to call out, uh, call some people out and uh, call out your neighbor. Any other, any good names, embarrassing names that your neighbor shared with you? All right, you know, it's there. All right, so when I started to think about the nicknames that I had uh, growing up, uh, when I was at Wilson High School, uh, I was only there for a year, but uh, these, the, the girls, the friends of the girls that our group was a part of, they started calling me Stork. And, uh, you know, I don't know if it's because I'm you know, skinny legs, probably, or if it rhymes with dork or whatever it was, but they would call me Stork. And, uh, you know, uh, at church, uh, some of the older big brothers affectionately, affectionately called me uh, Bean Sprout which in Korean is kongnamur, it's just this little head of a bean and a little squiggly root, right? And it's just, just kind of looks like this all the time. And that's the nickname they gave me. And uh, once I got married, my wife, when I started gaining a little weight, I think I shared this before, she called me a pregnant worm. Right? That's just the belly right here. Because I was gaining a little bit of weight. And I was thinking about that, and I was like, you know, there's a common thread in all that. You know, all those things are associated with, you know, my physique, you know. How, how skinny I am, right? I was like, are they skinny shaming me or something? Or, but anyhow, the reason why I share this story, as ridiculous as it sounds, is because, you know, we come into chapter one, scene one of Jesus entering into the gospel of John, right? And what we see is that he has ascribed many different nicknames, if you will, titles that are ascribed to Jesus. People are excited for Jesus to come on the scene, and they give him all these different names. And so, in this passage, is actually a surprise, but it's one of the most comprehensive lists of Jesus' names and his titles in all of Scripture. In, in this short little passage, Jesus is described in many different ways, right? And we're going to just highlight a few of these, and afterwards, and try, instead of trying to explain all of these, because uh, for the sake of time, we won't do that, but we'll try to summarize all of it into one uh, succinct idea, all right? So it starts in verse 29, when John the Baptist, he's been doing the work of God, doing the work of ministry, and he's waiting for Jesus to arrive, and he sees Jesus in the distance. And this is what he says, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If I could just pause for a brief moment. You know, when we think about the Lamb of God, we instantly think about Jesus and that little painting picture with holding a really cute and delicate lamb. And we're like, oh, truly Jesus is the lamb of God. And he's died for us. And he's been the sacrificial lamb. But what you have to understand is back then, at that point, Jesus is still alive. right? He hasn't gone to the cross yet. He hasn't sacrificed his life. Nor is the expectation for Jewish, uh, in Jewish society for their Messiah or their chosen one to die. No, when they say this is the Lamb of God, they're thinking, you know, for those of you who, uh, 
you know, I've watched Marvel comics and Marvel movies. They're not thinking about like the cute, small group. This Lamb of God is more close to like the Thanos, almost ominous, coming to enact judgment, right? This Lamb of God was not cute and cuddly. He was a warrior, right? And we don't have time to get into it, but in Revelation, they talk about this Lamb that's going to come, and everyone is afraid, and they're hiding in their caves, and they're like, allow this cave to just collapse on me so I don't have to face the Lamb. And there's this great fear of this Lamb, right? So it's an apocalyptic Lamb, not this cute and cuddly lamb. But John here, he says, here comes this lamb who's come now to take away the sins of the world. They're expecting this lamb to come and purge all the immorality and kill everyone that is immoral and has been living unjustly, right? So this is the type of lamb of God they're looking for. And the list goes on. And then he goes on to say in verse 34, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Self-explanatory. And then the disciples catch wind of Jesus and they come to him. And these are the statements that they make. These are the nicknames that they give to Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 41, this is disciple Andrew. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ, or which means the anointed one, the one that God has chosen. Uh, in verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So he's the fulfillment of all that was written about in the Old Testament. John chapter 1, verse 49 at the end, Nathanael, he sees him himself and he says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. These are all deeply theological points and in these short 20 verses, he is called the Lamb of God. He is called the Son of God. He is called the Messiah, the Christ, the one whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote about. He is called uh, the King of Israel. All of these rich theological terms, they're bestowing on Jesus. And we won't get, you know, again, we, we won't have time to get into all these titles individually and to go in depth but there is a common thread in all of these titles together. And the common thread of all of these titles is that they meet and describe the Jewish expectation of the Messiah. They were longing for this chosen one, this anointed person who was going to come and be the Lamb of God, be the King of Israel, be the Son of God, and and accomplish all of these things. And so they had this Jewish expectation for a Messiah. All of this, to give a little bit of backstory, all of this starts from, if you remember, uh, King David. You know, we had a series on 1st uh, and 2nd Samuel. Let's just go out. Should I just... This guy? Okay. Uh, this, this goes all the way back 700 years from when Jesus was born to when King David was around, right? You guys all remember King David. You know, he had the little sling, killed, da killed Goliath, all that stuff with Bathsheba and all that stuff. So God made a covenant that God promised that David would have someone in his line that would carry the seed and accomplish many great things. One of which would be that there would be a king established in Israel uh, generation after generation. Now, in this covenant, in this promise that God had made with David, he also says that you will also have 
their sons and descendants under you who will be kings, but they will turn away from the Lord. People like King Solomon and uh, you know, the, the, his, his children. And, and as we go down the list of first kings, we, we went through all of those. But these people will be disobedient and God will discipline them, but he will not turn his face away. In fact, later on in the future, he will restore the line of King David. And in the line of King David, there will be a king who will establish his rule and reign finally over all of Israel. And so this is the expectation that all of Israel has had since the line of King David, that there will be a king that will rule over them justly and with mercy and equally and rightly and with compassion and grace, all these great things. And so they're waiting. But 700 years go by from when David was given that covenant to when Jesus is born. And throughout that whole history, we know that because of Israel's disobedience, the Assyrians come through God's judgment. The Assyrians come, take over Israel. Then even in their disobedience, continued disobedience, the Babylonians come. Then the Persians come. Then the Greeks come. And now, in Jesus' time, the Romans have come. The Romans are now the ones that are occupying Israel. And the whole time the Israelites are wondering, where is this king? Where is this king that's going to overthrow the Roman government? Where is this king that's going to establish Israel as a political, king, as a political power uh, when where other nations will fear us militaristically, will admire us and revere us because of our financial wealth? They wanted this political power and they were waiting for it but it was not happening for 700 years until Jesus bursts on the scene and rumors are flying that this might be the one he might be the king of Israel the Messiah and so you see uh, the disciples you see uh, John the Baptist getting very excited you see the people the crowds getting very excited because this could be the one and they ascribe all of these names to him. The King of Israel, uh, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the one who's, who fulfilled all the Old Testament and the laws and the prophets. He is the chosen one. But what's interesting is Jesus' response to all of these titles. Look at verse 49. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Nathanael is excited but Jesus doesn't say, yeah, you got it. Yeah, you get it. Look at it, what his response is. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending. And this is the title that he gives himself, on the Son of Man. On the Son of Man. He doesn't say, on the King of Israel, on the Son of God, on the Messiah. He says, the Son of Man. The Son of Man is one of the most banal and boring and benign, neutral titles that you can give yourself. Uh, it's pretty much saying you're the Son of Bob, or the Son of Joe, or the Son of whoever. It really means nothing. You're just a, a somebody. You're just a human, just a, a human being. 
But why? Why doesn't Jesus receive all of these names in the beginning of his ministry? Why doesn't he say, yes, you are right, I'm here, I'm the king of Israel, I'm the Messiah, I'm the chosen one, here I am. Why doesn't he do that? And why does he take on instead this name, the Son of Man? The reason why Jesus doesn't take these names is because these names, the King of Israel, and the Messiah, and the Son of God, and the Lamb of God, all of these, by this point, in that society, had uh, carried connotations and meanings and had been filled with so much uh, definitions from their own expectations that it was no longer the, per- it no longer served the purpose and the meaning that Jesus himself came to accomplish, right? To clarify this a little bit, you know, when I think about the term or the phrase, make America great again, right? Some of you guys have this visceral reaction already, like, oh my gosh, make America great again. But that phrase by itself in a vacuum is a great statement, right? I mean, for those people who live in America, I don't think anyone would say, in a vacuum, that phrase is a bad statement. Like, no one would say, yeah, I don't, no, I don't want America to be great again. But because of the context behind it now, because we know what it's associated with now, because we have a different uh, context behind that phrase, depending on where you fall politically, you think differently about this phrase, right? It gives you a different feeling about that phrase. And that's what I mean by all of these titles, the Son of God and the Messiah and the King of Israel, the Lamb of God. They had been filled with so much context and meaning behind them that apart from those things, Jesus could say, yeah, for sure I'm the King of Israel. For sure I'm the Lamb of God. For sure... I'm the Messiah, all of those things. But because they had been so infiltrated and compromised by the society's definition of what these words and titles mean, he had to pull back from them. And he had to say, no, 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 I don't ascribe to your expectations of what you think the king of Israel should look like or the son of man or, or the son of God. There is something else. There's a different meaning. There's a different purpose for why I've come. And so he calls himself the Son of Man. Now, why does he call himself the Son of Man? Not to get too political, I'm not political at all, but for some reason these political uh, examples keep coming up, but there's a guy named Andrew Yang. Have you guys heard of him? He's a candidate for Democrats. No? No one? Maybe just a few, okay. All right, well, there's this guy. He's an Asian guy, so it's, I figured you guys might know him because he's like the only Asian Democrat candidate of all, uh, anyhow. So this guy, you know, I don't know his policies, and I'm not telling you to vote for him or anything, but he has this really brilliant marketing strategy, right? He is a Democrat by name, but what he says is, hey, I'm not of the left, I'm not of the right, I am about moving forward. And I saw that and I heard that, I was like, that's brilliant, because if he were to say, I'm of the left, what is that? Uh, that's the Democrats, right? right? If I'm of the left, then the Republicans would be like, oh, that guy is just ridiculous. And he would already separate and divide half the nation. And if he says, no, I, don't worry, I'm for the right, then the left would say, oh, 
he's a sellout, right? Oh my gosh, we can't trust him anymore. And he would divide, right? And so his brilliant marketing plan is, hey, no, I'm not of the left, I'm not of the right, I'm about moving forward. Because the term going forward has not yet been defined, right? He does, people don't know, well, what does he mean by going forward? And so now he gets to define what it means to go forward, right? Then people are more open to hear what he has to say about politics. In the same way, I think that's what Jesus is doing here when he talks about the Son of Man. The Son of Man has so little context and so little definition. It occurs a few times in the, in the Old Testament, but it's so few that now when he says, no, I'm the Son of Man, people are perking their ears up and saying, who is the Son of Man? What does the Son of Man do? What is his purpose? And now Jesus himself gets to fill that definition. He gets to tell everyone and gather everyone and say, hey, this is what the Son of Man is all about. And so he's bringing them all together so that he could redefine his purpose and his plan. He had to do this because if he were to just say, I'm the King of Israel, I'm the Lamb of God, these were very politically charged and dangerous words. In fact, if you think about uh, when he's about to be crucified, when he's a judge, when he's in uh, you know, court before Pontius Pilate, right? the reasons why people wanted to kill him was because of these titles. Right? In John 19, verse 7, the Jews answered, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. Right? The Jews wanted to kill him because of that title the Son of God. Uh, the Romans wanted to get rid of him because he claimed himself, he claimed to be the king, which is in direct op opposition and a threat to Rome, right? In John 19, 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So there's danger. In the beginning of his ministry, what he wanted to do was put off all of those definitions teach everyone what it means to be, that revealed for himself to be the son of man, and for those three years of ministry to stay away from these politically charged words. So what we see throughout the book of John and what we're going to see through every sermon from here on out as we cover chapter by chapter is who is Jesus? And what is his role and what is his purpose in this life? And what we see is that as the Son of Man, we get a clear definition of that. One is that, yes, he is the King of Israel. Yes, he is the King. Yes, he is the one that is going to rule and reign. But he has come in this earth to be a servant king. If we look at Mark chapter 10, verse 42 to 45, he's talking to his disciples who are trying to jostle for position. They want to sit at his right and left because they want to rule and reign with him. They still don't fully understand what it means that Jesus is the king. And Jesus calls them out on it. In verse 42, he says, And Jesus called, to them, called them to him and said to him, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Look at the term that he uses again. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, yeah, in your minds, the Son of God comes and rules and reigns, and you get to stand and sit next to him and judge and have the role of power. But he says, no, I'm the Son of Man. I didn't come here to be served, but I've come here to serve. And he's redefining their expectations of the Messiah, the Chosen One. You know, I think this is a great point for us to think through. Because, you know, obviously for us who've been in the church for a long time, we think, you know, we'll read this and we say, of course, yeah, we're here to serve. You know, that's what the Bible teaches us, that's been ingrained in us. But I wonder if service is just simply a part of our lives or if it's actually the purpose of our lives. You know, when Jesus says this, he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life life as a ransom for many. That he saw service as the very purpose and goal of his life. You know, even for me, I have to ask myself on a daily basis, is this my purpose in life, to serve others? Is this what I wake up thinking about? Is this what I uh, imagine when I'm driving during my commute and I'm thinking, who can I serve today? Or when we have conflict with someone, how can I serve this person? Are those uh, the things that are going in our minds? Are those, is that the lens that we see our lives? Because this is how Jesus saw his life, that he came to serve and not to be served. You know, oftentimes I think the temptation is for us, you know, when we're honest with ourselves, it's like when we wake up, when we think about our free time, what gets us excited as we wake up is, you know, how can we make that extra dollar? Or how can we live even more comfortably today? Or more safe? Or uh, maximize our potential? Or experience the most pleasure with food and uh, vacations? And, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of times those things are on our minds, right? At the forefront of our minds. Those are the things that we daydream about. Or if we think about who we model ourselves after. What autobiographies do we read? Is it about the rich, successful person and the five tips of how we can be rich and successful? Is it about uh, you know, the Instagram uh, influencer who has that perfect life and it's like, oh man, I want to have that perfect life and I want to live the way they live. Who do we model ourselves after? Who do we envy? Who do we look up to? Or the issue can just be not that we don't serve, but maybe just that we want to be served, you know. Because, you know, I'm a certain age now, and I deserve to be served. Or I'm a man, so I deserve to be served. Or I'm a woman, so I deserve to be served. Or, uh, you know, I have a certain amount of status in this place, or this much experience, or I'm the boss, and I deserve to be served. That's the type of life, or that's the type of society that we live in, right? But how radical is it for us to put all of that and flip it upside down and say, how can I serve? How can I, as the boss, serve others? How can I, as a man, serve my wife? How can I, as as a woman, serve my husband? How can I serve in these different contexts? That that would be the lens in which we see our entire life. Because if this is the purpose of my master, 
and I'm saying I want to follow my master, how much more so should our lives look like that? That our nicknames now should be, you know, the servant like Sam, or the sacrificial Pastor Steve, right? Or a humble Harry, or generous George, or whatever it is. That our nicknames should be associated closely, not with how we look or what we like or enjoy uh, of this world, but with Christ, becoming like him more and more. This is the expectation that he fills the Son of Man with. And so you have to imagine the disciples, the crowds, as they're hearing this, they have to be a little bit disappointed, right? Because they were expecting this big event where the king was going to come. They were going to follow the king. They were going to sit at his right and his left. And they were going to judge and be in power. But now Jesus is telling them, no, I am the king, but you have to serve, right? We all have to serve. You can imagine the kind of disappointment of, they're like, wait, what's my life going to look like now, right? And we see it throughout scripture. You know, John and James, they're constantly jostling position, asking Jesus for a position of power next to them. Uh, Even Peter, he rebukes Jesus, right? When Jesus says that he has to go and die, this is what Peter says in verse 21 of Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside. He said, Jesus, come here real quick. And began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It's the false expectation again, right? Peter didn't understand that, he had, that Jesus had to suffer. Even, even the crowd, when they see Jesus doing miracles and feeding the 5,000, they're like, This guy is the king. Let's make him king. And in chapter 6, verse 15 of John, he says, Perceiving then that they, this is the crowd, were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The crowd saw him and they're like, dude, let's pick up our pitchforks and axes and let's go take over Rome because this is the king. And they want to take it over by force because they said, we have our king here. And Jesus withdraws because he says, this is not why I've come. I've come to serve. I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. And this is the calling that he had for the disciples. And the disciples must be thinking, man, did we follow the wrong Messiah? Is he, is he really the king? Or, you know, is this really who we need to expect? And this is something that the disciples and the crowds and the people have to wrestle with throughout the gospel. As John reveals Jesus Christ more and more about who he is and his purpose and his nature, the people begin to wrestle with it say, this is not the expectation that I had for the Messiah, but through his miracles, through his teachings, through his uh, death, through his resurrection, and through his eventual glorification, he will reveal himself more and more as a true chosen one that God had promised from the Old Testament. And so the invitation for his disciples is to see for themselves as they look through the Gospel of John, to see for themselves. Uh, what's interesting is, you know, this chapter has the longest list of titles for Jesus, but it's also littered with words of discovery, right? 
the word see or some form of it, like saw is found 11 times. Found is found five times. Seeking, look, behold, heard, know, revealed, bore witness. All of these things where God is inviting us to follow and seek and find him are constantly being reiterated in this passage. Jesus is inviting them to come and see and disciples are recognizing and they're finding who Jesus is. And this is the call for us today. That Jesus is inviting our church and every single one of us to come closer, to take a closer look at Jesus as he reveals himself, as he reveals his purpose, as he reveals what he's done for us. And he invites us to see the depth of his love and the width of his grace and all of these things as you approach him and seek him uh, more intimately. I remember when I first accepted Jesus uh, sometime in high school. You know, I was at one of those retreats. And if I could describe one title that really fit the theme of my high school time was just Savior, right? You know, the pastors were constantly reminding me that he's my Savior, that he's my Savior, that he's died for your sins. And so mentally I knew, yeah, he's the one that's died for my sins. And so he was my Savior. And as I got into college, one of the things that I prayed, though, was, you know, God, I know that you're my Savior. But in my heart, you know, I don't feel like I'm that bad of a person, you know. You know, I, I don't think I'm that bad of a sinner. I feel like I'm generally a good person, which is funny because as I look back, you know, I did all the bad things that I, that shouldn't have made me think that I was not a sinner. Like, I cheated on tests and stole and, you know, made fun of people and didn't obey my parents, all of those things, right? right? I did all those things, but I don't know why in the back of my mind I just thought, God, I don't, I don't feel that I'm a sinner, you know? That was the prayer that I prayed. And I said, God, I, because I genuinely wanted to know God more, and I wanted to experience it. And so I wanted to experience the depths of his grace. And I said, God, please help me to even recognize, you know, how wretched of a sinner I am. And, you know, what a foolish prayer that was, right? Because throughout the rest of my college and seminary years, it wasn't even like I had done anything worse. It was just that God was constantly exposing myself to my hypocrisy my thoughts, and what I was really thinking, my emotions, or my intentions. And I started to realize, like, man, I am the worst of sinners. Right? On the exterior, yeah, maybe I try to present myself as this perfect person, and I don't want to sin. But man, God started to reveal the depth of my wretchedness. And it was only during that wretched, the understanding of that wretchedness that His grace and his love, and his mercy, and his faithfulness, all those things started to come alive. And I understand, uh, began to understand more, more of those things in depth. Right? As I got closer to Jesus, he made me more aware of my sinfulness, and yet it became sweeter because I understood that he truly was my Savior. That it wasn't just in high school, I know it mentally, and I, and I, and I, and I don't experience it, but as I experience it, as I walk closer to Jesus, I begin to understand it more in my life. And this is the calling for each and every one of us. You know, we've, for believers, at one point we've accepted Jesus Christ. 
But if we stay complacent and we say, this is all I need to know, we are losing out on the depths of the intimacy that we can have with Jesus Christ. As he reveals himself, as he invites us to come to him, as we come to him and as we understand more of who he is. You know, in this life, none of us here have a perfect picture of who Jesus is. Uh, in terms of all of his character, all of his attributes, and even the depth of those characters and attributes. You know, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Beloved, we are now children of God, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when Christ appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Scripture teaches us that in this life, it's almost like, you know, as we look in a mirror, it's just a dimly lit mirror or in a dimly lit area that we won't be able to fully see the full picture of uh, the depth of Jesus' love and his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness and his sacrifice, all those things, until we enter into heaven, when we will see Jesus face to face. And so the call for genuine and authentic disciples is to continue to pursue him, to seek after him, to bear witness to who he is and his word and in the life that God's given you, and to not be complacent with our relationship with Jesus. You know, and you know, I'm speaking to a people in our church who go to church, you know, who are Christian, who are professing Christians, who you know, tithe and give and serve and all of that. But all of that is uh, exterior uh, if we don't uh, focus on what Christ, uh, on who Christ is and in our relationship with him. And so this is my prayer and invitation that Jesus gives to us, that he calls us to discover, to learn, and to bear witness, um, and that we would continue to pursue him each and every day, that we would grow in our depths of knowledge of his love and mercy and his character for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to come before you and acknowledge that, Lord, your character and your purpose, God, on one hand, is so simple that you love us and you've come to redeem us, and yet, on the other hand, could be so complex and so deep, God. And so we thank you for speaking to people as simple as us and yet being able to reveal to us more and more of who you are each and every day, Lord. And so I pray for our church that we would passionately pursue this intimate relationship with you as you welcome us and call us to follow after you, that we would find you and bear witness and uh, learn and grow
to learn about who you are and your purpose for us, God. So we thank you for this time.